0: You are listening to a sermon from the First Baptist Church of Ewing, a Christ-centered church in Lewis County. If you have your Bibles, look at Jonah chapter 3, starting in verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Uh, With the nature of it being winter, and I said, you know, we've already, it's still January, we've already had to cancel services twice already. Um, I understand that many of you probably have not been able to hear all of the sermons in uh, this series so far as we've been working through the book of Jonah. Uh, And if you've missed any of those and you're able, um, I'd encourage you to check out our Facebook page or our website. Uh, Those sermons will be listed on there as well. Um, If you have a smartphone, uh, you can also go back and listen to any of our old sermons uh, in in your podcast app on your smartphone as well. Um, But last week, um, I was talking about the wickedness of the ancient Assyrians. And I just want to repeat something that I said for those who missed it. We actually have um, diary entries that were preserved from a number of the kings that lived in Nineveh, bragging, actually bragging about the evils that they did. Um, last week, I mentioned one guy in particular, uh, Asher the II, Uh, which I am absolutely sure that I'm butchering that name. I have no idea how to pronounce that name. Uh, But he was talking about one of the many, many cities that he sent his armies to conquer. And this is what he said. He said, In strife and conflict, I besieged and conquered the city. I felled 3,000 of their fighting men with sword. Uh, I captured many troops alive. I cut off some of their arms and hands. I cut off of others their noses and ears and extremities. Um, I gouged out the eyes of many troops. And I made one pile of the living and one of heads. And I hung their heads on trees around the city. These are the kinds of people that Jonah was commanded to preach to about the one true God of Israel. Uh, And and that's just one example that I could give you about the Assyrians. Uh, And believe it or not, that's actually one of the tamer examples that I could share. Um, I read several other accounts this week, and honestly, there were several that I would not feel comfortable uh, reading about from the pulpit. And the Assyrians really were the ancient equivalent of terrorists. I mean, many of their actions were on par with the likes of Al-Qaeda or ISIS. And yet, as we read about them in our text today, we, we read of revival breaking out in their midst from the least of the Ninevites to the greatest, even though Jonah came into town, as I said last week, preaching a a half-hearted sermon that was only five words in the original Hebrew. That sermon still managed to reach the king, who in an utterly unkingly-like manner removed his robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in ashes. Uh, in, In the ancient world, uh, Dawning on sackcloth or covering yourself in ash, it was a sign of mourning and humility. And it was generally reserved for only the greatest tragedies in life. And kings were often very reluctant to partake in such public acts of remorse because it, it made them look weak. But this king along with 120,000 inhabitants of Nineveh, all donned on sackcloth, and they put on ash. Even the livestock in the city were forced to participate in this repentance. And I'm sure that was an interesting sight to behold. Uh, I'm not exactly sure how you convince a cow or a camel to go all day, Uh, without food. Uh, Maybe maybe some of you who have been farmers or are farmers maybe would know more about this than me. I don't know how you convince them to fast, but apparently they figured it out. Uh, But we're going to see, as we study this passage in more detail today, uh, we're going to see how it lays out for us a biblical model for repentance. And we're going to see that repentance is It isn't just a one-time thing. It's not just something for non-believers to do when they first submit their lives to Christ and become a Christian. Rather, repentance is a lifelong process. Uh, It it should be an entire way of life. When you think about it, repentance is is actually the only way to ever make any spiritual progress in life. I mean, you don't grow in Christian maturity merely through just the, um, you know, acclamation of, of information or just by knowing more Bible facts or uh, just by having more life experiences. We'll see that instead, the path towards genuine spiritual progress, it really comes only through repentance. The the more that you repent, the more you can rejoice in the Lord, and the more you become resolved to live the life that God intended you to live. So we're going to look at this idea of repentance from three different angles from this passage. I was uh, reading a book this week, uh, surprise, surprise, Uh, But I was reading a book this week called Running from Mercy, uh, which is another commentary on the book of Jonah. Uh, And it reminded me of an old saying that I've heard before, but it was very, very helpful to hear again. Uh, The author, Anthony Carter, he, he wrote that repentance shouldn't just change your head, but it should also change your heart and your hands. So that's actually going to be the basic outline of our sermon this morning. Repentance means not only a change to your heart or not only a change to your head, but also a change to your heart and a change to your hands. Um, Whenever I've I've done youth ministry before, I always made them repeat uh, after me whatever I said, just trying to, to get it ingrained in their minds. So... Maybe we'll do uh, just a little bit of audience participation this morning, okay? I, I know I don't normally do this, but everybody uh, repeat after me, repent with your head. Repent with your head. Okay, that's, that's the, the first point here. Uh, this is probably the most basic, uh, most obvious aspect of repentance, It means you must change your mind and the way you think about things. Uh, As the, the king decreed a fast for the city of Nineveh, he told the citizens to call out mightily to God. For who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Um, I said last week, but the Assyrians were pagan. They worshipped a variety of different gods. Uh, One of the primary gods being Dagon. But but notice that Dagon is mentioned nowhere in this passage. I mean, there were no shortages of gods that the king could have commanded his people to pray to. Yet he commands them to call out to Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. Israel, the God of a nation who is technically their enemy. In Jonah's day, there really was no separation between religion and state. Quite often, nations had very specific deities associated with their people. So the king of Assyria, crying out to the God of Israel is more than just a little unusual. At a certain level, he's actually committing treason against his own people and culture. I mean, he is crying out to an enemy, God. But there's actually a lot in common these pagan citizens of Nineveh and their king have with the pagan sailors that we talked about back in chapter 1. Uh, If you remember, there was a storm that was sent to those sailors, and they tried everything they could do to save themselves. They threw their cargo overboard. uh, They tried rowing as hard as they could, trying to get back to shore, uh, but none of their efforts did any good. In fact, It actually made things worse because as they did those things, we read that the seas grew more and more tempestuous. It wasn't until they finally surrendered and gave up their attempts at trying to control the situation that anything finally changed. It wasn't until they cried out, Oh Lord, have done as it pleases you that we finally read that the seas ceased from their raging. So that's the pagan sailors. Now think about these pagan cities, uh, the pagan citizens of Nineveh and their king. These are the citizens of the capital of one of the most powerful and influential empires of their day. And how was it that the Assyrians found themselves in the position that they were in? How did they get to be such a powerful and influential people? Well, it was by being absolutely ruthless. I mean, they had to fight and claw their way to the top. Uh, It was only by killing and subjugating all of the other nations around them that they had come to, to have such control and influence over the ancient world, which is exactly why Jonah says... They're about to be destroyed because of the very wickedness which had got them to such a prestigious place in the world. The the very thing that allowed them to make it all the way to the top is actually the very reason they're about to be wiped off the map and dragged back down to the bottom. So now that this storm cloud of destruction is on the horizon, Just like the sailors, the only path forward for the Ninevites, at least the only path that doesn't involve perishing, is to surrender. To to cry out to the Lord and say, Who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Uh, There's an old C.S. Lewis quote that I really like. It says, sometimes the most progressive thing you can do is turn around and go back the way you came. And I really, I think that's true. You know, sometimes the most progressive thing you can do is just to turn around and go back the way you came. many times the fastest way forward is to stop and admit that you made a wrong turn. Because if you, you keep driving forward in the wrong direction, you're not actually going to make any progress at all. You're just going to get further and further away from where you need to be. So the quickest way to progress in your relationship with the Lord is to do like those sailors or these citizens of Nineveh and their king. You must recognize that the path to success actually starts with surrender. You have to understand that you're the problem, not the solution. And it's only then that you can ever make any real progress. Uh, There's a lot of people in this world uh, searching for whatever the next steps are so that they can find satisfaction and happiness in life. Uh, So often they assume that their uh, lack of those things just stems somehow from a lack of money. You know, it's because they have a high stress but low paying job. And so, you know, they'll spend their lives going to work early, staying late, uh, working overtime on the weekends, just trying to move themselves up the totem pole, trying to get a better job. But then they continue to realize that they're still unhappy. And so then, so often, maybe they assume that, that the source, the real source of their unhappiness is just a, an unsupportive spouse. And so sometimes they'll leave their husbands or they'll leave their wife, they'll try to find a new one. But deep down inside, they, they still realize that they're not happy about how their life is turning out. So they keep trying to find new solutions, trying to make progress when it comes to having fulfillment and joy in life. Yet they never stop to think that that constant attempt to solve their own problems might actually be the problem itself. So so you must change your way of thinking. You must stop and change your, your mind and be willing to surrender to the Lord so that he might be the solution uh, back to our audience uh, participation uh, repeat again uh, after me you must repent with your head must repent with your head okay number two you must repent with your heart. must repent with your heart all right in this passage Uh, the king, he he makes a a very public decree that all of the citizens of Nineveh, uh, they are to collectively cry out to the Lord. They're all to repent together. Uh, But how do they show that? How do they show their repentance? Uh, One of the ways we see is through fasting. The king said Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Now, of all the different ways the Ninevites could have expressed their remorse or their repentance for their nation's wickedness, Why is it that they chose to forego food and drink? And why were they so serious about it that they went to this ridiculous extreme of forcing even their livestock to fast with them? I mean, I can think of a lot of things that I would rather do than skip a meal. I think I would rather make a public apology Uh, or be forced to make a large charitable donation, or maybe have to perform hours of community service somewhere before I would give up on my brownies and ice cream, or miss out on some of Pete's famous cinnamon rolls. There's a lot of other things that I'd be willing to forego before I would want to skip a meal. But I think that's precisely the point. Because it's actually the desires of your heart that reveal to whom your heart is devoted. Whatever you can't live without, that is where the loyalty of your heart lies. You may think that food and drink, they're really not that big of a deal until you leave your house one day. Uh, You you leave the house for the day and you get in your car and you realize that you forgot to eat breakfast before you left. Just just see how long it takes you before you really regret that decision. Uh, Fasting, I think, has, has become such a forgotten discipline in the modern church, particularly churches throughout the United States. I mean, all you have to do is take a look at the number of overweight pastors in America to see that so many of them no longer take fasting seriously. So sometimes, myself included. But denying yourself of certain earthly pleasures is one of the greatest ways that you can prove that your desire for the Lord trumps your desire for anything else. It's like Psalm 42 that reminds us uh, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O oh God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. It's good when your mind acknowledges and even apologizes for the sins that you've committed, uh, but it is even better when you let your head knowledge lead to heart satisfaction don't just say that you're sorry for what you've done take it a step further and find your very satisfaction in the lord by longing for and letting your soul thirst for him alone uh, there's a pastor I've quoted a number of times, uh, John Piper, uh, and, and he so often reminded his congregations of these things. Uh, and something that, that he has said a number of times is sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. Uh, sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. Th- so you must always, he said, remember that God will be most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. I have lost count of the number of times I think I've heard Piper say that, but it's so true. God will always be most glorified when we, he will be most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Don't just repent with your head, Uh, Repent with your heart as well. Uh, And I'll I'll give you uh, a bit of a heads up that in the coming weeks, we're actually going to have the opportunity uh, to put this directly into practice. Uh, As many of you know, the season of Lent starts in March. Uh, Historically, that's a a 40-day period that leads up to Easter uh, when the church has set aside a time of fasting and prayer as they prepare to to celebrate Jesus's resurrection, just as Jesus took 40 days out in the wilderness to prepare for his ministry. And as our church is in a season of revitalization and renewal, we want to seek what the Lord has for us and how we as a church could uh, better reach the community around us with the gospel. Uh, So I have a 40-day devotional guide. It was given to me by the Missouri Baptist Convention. And I'd like for all of us who are willing and able to work through that during Lent as we prepare ourselves for what God has in store for us next um, I do promise we won't fast for all 40 of those days, but, but I do hope that some of you will take the opportunity to fast on occasion during this season and to show that our desires for God dominate any other desires that we might have. So back to audience participation. Uh, repeat after me, uh, repent with your head, repent with your head, Okay, Uh, Repent with your heart. Repent with your heart. Lastly, repent with your hands. Repent with your hands. All right. Starting uh, at the end of verse eight, uh, the king says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The religious system of the Ninevites was completely turned upside down. Instead of crying out to their usual pagan pantheon, they cried out to the Lord of Israel. They've acknowledged that he alone has the power to save them from their destruction, and that they've proven their newfound allegiance by fasting and showing their desires for the Lord are stronger than their desires for any earthly pleasures, such as food or drink. Uh, but lastly, and very importantly, they put their faith into action. They, they turned away from evil. They, they turned away from the violence that they were so infamously known for. I mean, you can just imagine how tangibly different the world around Syria is about to look as a result. As I said in the beginning, the Assyrians were known for chopping off the heads of their enemies and using it to decorate their trees. And so the landscape of the ancient world is about to look tangibly, noticeably different. I'm sure it's about to smell a whole lot better, too, without all of those rotting skulls dotting the countryside. We'll talk about how long this change is going to last when we study the book of Nahum in a couple of weeks. But for now, the city of Nineveh and the Assyrians, uh, they're they're being radically changed in very discernible ways that can be seen by others. Um, And and as a pastor, I interact with a variety of different individuals, um, some of whom in many ways are, are just like these Ninevites, uh, and in some of whom, in many ways, are a lot more like Jonah. Uh, and I want to give you just a little bit of insight into who the most difficult kind of people for me as a pastor are to work with. Though I promise I won't point any fingers, won't name any names, uh, but I regularly meet with those in the community uh, who are not Christian at all. You know, they have very little knowledge of the Christian faith, um, and they don't really honestly care to know much about the Christian faith either. And actually, I find it a joy to minister to those unbelievers. And because the Holy Spirit ha- has yet to-, to bring their heart from death to life, um, I don't really expect them to know much about what we believe as Christians or, or to even care about what we believe because they are spiritually dead still in their trespasses and their sin. That's one group. Uh, another group I regularly work with are new believers. And honestly, they're also a joy to minister to. Like the Ninevites, they, they usually know very little about what the Bible says, uh, but they have a great deal of passion to obey it. They have very little head knowledge, but their hearts are firmly and fully committed to the Lord. So it's my pleasure to work with individuals like that uh, because teaching them the stories of the Bible or the doctrines that those stories teach, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, that's pretty easy, uh, especially if they have a passion to learn. So so the, the most difficult individuals to work with are not the non-believers or the new believers, but rather the believers that think they have nothing new they can learn. These are the Christians who think that they've gone as far as they can go and who have nothing else that they can really be taught. And usually I find that these kinds of believers, they're the ones that have a great awareness about what the Bible teaches, Uh, They claim to have a great allegiance to what the Bible says, but so often that allegiance comes without action. It's allegiance without action. They, They claim that their heads and their hearts are full, yet their hands and their feet remain idle. And that's a problem. So often it's the new believers... They don't even have that much knowledge to put into action. These are the ones who are so zealous to please the Lord. When they see God at work in their lives, they want to behave like these Ninevites. They are willing to do whatever it takes to repent and submit themselves to the Lord. Even if some of the measures seem a bit ridiculous or extreme, like forcing their livestock to fast. But, but the longer we are believers, the more careful we ought to be that we don't go from being passionate like the citizens of Nineveh to becoming calloused like the prophet Jonah. Jonah knew more Bible verses than the Assyrians, but the number of Bible stories and the number of facts that you know cannot be the measuring stick by which you measure your spiritual maturity, and you cannot merely look at your head knowledge or even the zeal and the passion of your heart. You must also look to your hands. You must ask yourself if your repentance is tangible. Is your life noticeably different from when you first became a follower of Christ? Is it noticeably different now than when you were following Christ a year ago? Has your allegiance to Christ spurred you into action? Because you can have a head and a heart for Jesus, but without hands and feet to put that faith into motion, you're just going to remain stagnant in your spiritual life. You're just going to be lying on the side of the road somewhere, and others are going to wonder if your faith is even alive. Church, our community, uh, our, our country, they are not nearly as far gone as Nineveh was. I can promise you that. So, so if there was hope for even them, there, there can be hope for us today. There can be hope for you, there can be hope for our nation, there can be hope for this world, but that hope must be rooted in repentance, and our repentance must be rooted in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. He must be the one that leads us to repent, not only with our heads, but also with our hearts and also with our hands as well. Let me pray. Father, uh, thank you just again for the example of repentance that you have given us through the Ninevites. Uh, may, May you just use this. May we use this week just to dwell on what we have learned today. May we come to understand more and more uh, that repentance, it's not just for those who are trusting in Christ and who are submitting to him for the first time. Rather, it should be a way of life for even the most mature Christ follower in this room because repentance is the only path forward. And it's the only path by which we can draw closer and closer to you. So I just say all of this in Christ's holy and precious name, amen. Uh, we,